Hello, welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. My name is Phoebe. And this week we are joined by Joanne McNeil. Joanne McNeil is a journalist, podcaster, writer, and a critic. She hosts the podcast Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. Uh, it's an iHeart original series, iHeart Radio original series. Um, it's really, really good. I enjoyed listening to it this week. Uh, we both enjoyed listening to it this week. Um, so, Joanne, first of all, thank you for making it. I think it was like a really interesting like history of this platform, but it also like really it, it was an interesting insight into just like the way in which social media economies actually function and it dispelled a lot of the myths that i think um tech companies like to tell themselves about why they exist and like and why they deserve the special privileges that they now usually get um before we sort of go into like those like the sort of structural uh, or how we sort of got to this point structurally uh for people who haven't listened to the podcast uh what is uh, main accounts of story of MySpace and what made you interested in studying this? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for listening. And um, so the podcast is about MySpace, which as a surprise to me has not really been uh, written about. There haven't been documentaries. There haven't been uh, other podcast series that look deeply at the history of the social network, despite being quite pivotal and being a pivotal kind of intermediary between two eras that are widely discussed, which would be the 90s internet, um, that freewheeling cyber culture of the 90s, and what we have today, this big tech social media like Facebook. And I, I thought it would be really interesting to show what it was actually like, first of all, for people who had no experience with it, and then also to reveal just how um, how early some of the topics that we might associate with social media of today, how early they were actually grappled with. So a lot of mm -hmm. things like online harassment or uh, various elements of you know content moderation. Um, these are topics that now that tech culture, tech and society is a much more broadly discussed in the media are are associated with the era in which they have been discussed, which would be Twitter and Facebook. But in fact, a lot of um, a lot of the behaviors, a lot of the habits, um, a lot of kind of procedures, including content moderation and including other kind of ways of of gathering online. A, a lot of that started on MySpace, uh, just because of the various elements that made it unique. Again, it started. Um, roughly about the time that broadband became huge, that people were switching mm -hmm. from dial-up to broadband. Mm -hmm. Computers are faster and you're able to share music and images much easier than you could have on the 90s internet. So mm -hmm. a lot of this happened and it happened with this really goofy, easy to joke about company. I mean, it's like everything <laughs> about MySpace itself is kind of a joke. So, but then mm. the actual, the actual user behavior itself, um, there, there's so much that we can connect to what's, what we see now that that started on MySpace. Yeah. That was something that I that I found just like so interesting when I was listening to it, which was the extent to which MySpace particularly formed this kind of cultural connective tissue between the 90s and the aughts in a way that, like you said, has has never really been 
explored. And I and I I have to say this this is something which I know I always uh, blame things on anything which is of interest to teenage girls gets kind of it gets sort of it gets sort of treated like it's a kind of secondary uh, like it's a secondary cult sort of cultural phenomenon, but with particularly with stuff like MySpace and sort and latterly Tumblr, um, and also uh, more text based sites like LiveJournal, because they so uh, they so worked against this idea that this idea of like the internet user and like the forum and message board user of being like of being a man like that's what like this was when I was a teenager like the being online that was like that was what boys did and like weird boys as well not like not boys that you would want anything to do with and particularly uh particularly with MySpace particularly with um with the interest in like kind of decorating your own space like it's your bedroom like it's like it's a kind of external external kind of image and text object which like indicates the kind of person you were it sort it indicated a kind of a, a kind of girlification of the internet and i think that's one of the reasons that no one's ever looked at it in any kind of seriousness before yeah, I, I think that's a really great point and something mm. that you can easily compare Friendster with MySpace in that respect because Friendster was just slightly older than MySpace, at least uh, like it's in terms of um, communities that it, it was very specifically like early to mid 20s on Friendster, it felt like. So, mm. but with MySpace, you had a lot of the younger teens there too. and a lot of the customization that you could do to your profile, the kind of images and music playing, the pink fonts, the pink backgrounds, the, the blingies everywhere, that, that kind of, uh, the, the, the images, the, the, and all of this, by the way, was by accident. It turned out that uh, MySpace developers just forgot to prevent users from being able to customize their their profiles and at first when they they saw it they thought oh we're these kids are getting hacked it's like oh no they're doing this on purpose and they seem to like it okay let's just not let's not fix it I mean, is that that's like is is that true yeah. that's amazing <laughs> this is like the classic myspace situation with like the the corporate side of myspace where it's just like oops well I don't really want to do it and people like it. I mean, it's just like, that's kind of how things came together. These were not like these masterminds of social media. In fact, they were just kind of like trying to find a place that would be cool to hang out. And also, you know, just they, they wanted to make money. They wanted the other things, but not, not in the sense of like power and, mm. and, uh, world domination or anything like that it was it was more like yeah. being like the coolest guy in LA is like the ultimate thing that Tom seemed to want I... <laughs> <laughs> mm. and that's of course what um what makes it so different to then what replaced it which is Facebook which was aggressively uncustomizable that was part of yeah. it that yeah. every single's page every single person's page looked exactly the same and the kind of the and the and the capacity to make it your own was was very very limited, and that's why people used to put those gigantic lists of um of like band names and 
and like films that they liked on Facebook because it was the only way that you could do any kind of customization for your page. Mm. Um, but even even early even early on with Facebook, um, after it became available to everyone in the world and not just students, there was like a kind of sense of this kind of gearing up uh, to uh, to a place where uh, digital infrastructure could be. Uh, could be utilized as a kind of soft power um, and then latterly a kind of hard power and that never seemed to be the case with myspace that doesn't it, the idea of it even being digital infrastructure seemed like a kind of like almost like an afterthought as opposed to the main thought yeah yeah and i, I would say like it was it was just different objectives even when you know news corp acquired myspace relatively early and their thinking with acquiring myspace was that users are creating content for free. So this is mm-hmm. this means that we don't need to get artists in a studio and pay um, sound engineers. We don't have to pay directors to make TV shows because users are entertaining themselves by just posting online. And that was that was Rupert Mur- Murdoch's thought process. That was like the thought process at at News Corp. And in many respects, they were correct. I mean, we could see Mm. like the value of content. We could see how many hours people waste on social media entertaining themselves. And like, think about all those jokes on Twitter that like, Mm. you know, how like something like drill, you know, it's just like how, how many hours we might think about or, or spend time reading other people's posts. And meanwhile, you can sell ads against that. That, that was the, the model of of MySpace and in many respects, like I would say MySpace not only paved the way for something like Facebook, but also things like Spotify and Netflix and a lot of media and content sites through the internet. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, this was just a real, <laughs> a real like cl- classic Harvard mindset. Like, you know, this, uh, being as as akin to a government database as possible, just like having all like the aesthetics of uh, of something of like a public sector or like a government contractor, you know, like the, mm. that that was what they were doing early on, and and I I think a lot of people talk about it in retrospect that Facebook had much better engineering teams and things like that. And I, I actually think that's a little bit overplayed. I think Facebook mm-hmm. just had like a sense of, we need to go, um, we need to have a, a lobbying arm. We need to like make sure that the schools are adopting Facebook, that that cities are, are using it for uh, municipal notices. Like they went right to kind of like policy and corporations and and to the halls of power which myspace did not really care about it was still kind of a hollywood entertainment space that was their idea of power was still like hollywood and the 90s power as opposed to you know congress yeah Mm. so a kind of failure to predict what the kind of capacities of social media could be um, I think, yeah, I think the um, the the skills of the engineers um, is like is maybe a little overblown, particularly since 
what I re- what I remember as being the appeal of MySpace was its slightly janky interface and mm. this kind of and this sort of sense of um, this sense of kind of DIYness. Um, and even if uh, the way that you became kind of big on MySpace still kind of collapsed along this little roughly the same lines as sort of any other any other aspect of the culture was collapsing was collapsing along. Um, it still it still had this it still had this sense of well it had this sense of a kind of digitized version of sort of, of, of like zine culture which is i think i think what sort of popularized it and it was different from it was different from forums because there was this uh, there was this visual this kind of strong visual aspect which is something which you know without wishing to um without wishing to kind of generalize is something that kind of appealed more to kind of young young women and teenage girls um than the idea of like kind of spending uh, like a like a kind of saturday afternoon uh sending like increasingly creative insults to you know to like some kid in iowa or whatever or whatever it was that went on on the forums i do not know for i was a teenage girl um <laughs> And I think that, yeah, I think that part of it, it's sort of, I mean, it, it, and it was a kind, and it was a, it was a kind of theme park version of zine culture. It wasn't because it, because it, it, because it did take, it, you know, it did have, it did have a kind of a corporate, like a kind of corporate structure behind it. It did have engineers behind it. It had a strategy department, maybe not as villainous and clever a strategy department as a, uh, as Facebook later later got themselves, or for that matter as villainous a uh, strategy department as, as Murdoch had in you know during his like during his acquisition but there was this kind of sense that it was kind of by the young people for the young people in the way that kind of zine culture had been and admittedly that like ended up like shutting out a lot of young people that like uh, the the kind of more sort of DIY local cultures had brought in but I think that was going to be the case with any kind of mass use and any kind of mass culture. Um, it's the kind of thing that always happens, and it's always it's all it's always a great shame. But that's but one of the things that um, that particularly struck me um, when I was listening to it, particularly the episode about um, about music and music scenes, particularly if you were somebody who was into a music scene, which the other kids at your school weren't maybe and you wanted to you wanted to kind of branch out and meet new people in the scene and how much targeting there was of teenage girls by adult male musicians and this is this was so like because I was I was a teenager before the internet basically I mean it existed but you had to wait until everyone was off the phone and it took 4,000 years to download a picture. Um, and sometimes it sort of stopped halfway through. Uh, you know, the, you, 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 you remember. Um, and I met people who, was, who were into the same music that I was into uh, in the way that every young person in London did, which was hanging around on the rail on the railings outside Camden Town tube station. <laughs> that's just that's just how we did it on Saturday afternoons. We, you know, we packed up our Jansport bags and then we went and just sat on the railings <laughs> and everyone who we thought was worth knowing at some point or another was going to pass through Camden Town tube station on a Saturday afternoon. And then we would go to like bars that didn't ID or we'd go and sit on the lock and then we went to this club 
which didn't, which also didn't ID. And every single one of the girls there were between 14 and 16. There were maybe some like elder statement statesman girls who were like 17 <laughs> who you could trust to get you home safely because they were 17 um and then the men were between like 19 and 28 and that was just mm. just the just the way it was no one questioned it no one really raised an eyebrow um and so it always felt like when when there was a kind of great sort of <gasps> But you know, MySpace. You know, these musicians are using it to. They're using it to kind of get hold of their fifteen-year-old fans. And I was like, yeah, just like they do in every single local music scene, and have done apparently since there was such a thing as a local music scene. What we're seeing here is the scale. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that it's a new thing. This is just the scale, and it's not the ease of access either. Because, like I said, this was absolutely like a well-known thing. I remember this one girl that I knew who was like 14 and she was seeing a bloke in a semi-famous hardcore band um, who I will not name because he has since passed and, you know, speak ill of the dead. And he broke up with her because all of her friends were really immature. And I was like, that's because you're dating a 14-year-old girl. What did you think her friends would be like? You fucking creep. I appreciate this is something of a something of a tangent, but <laughs> I think that this is I think that this is like one of the things that uh, that appealed to the teenage market and the teenage culture is that it did feel at the time. And when MySpace became big, I was a little bit I was a little bit older, so I was a bit more kind of circumspect. I didn't I never met anyone through MySpace or anything like that. But it definitely seemed to me like even though it was still just like any other company that was set up to make money and to make the founders seem like the coolest guys in LA. There was this sense of it being a kind of self-generating, self-energizing entity in a way that nothing else on the internet had before. So the forums were just like, like boys sending, like sending violent sexual commentary. Um, and then everything else was like adults trying desperately to kind of come up with uh, a kind of framing of mass culture that was going to be appealing to young people. And then finally there was something which, and it's because of the user generated content and because of the user, like the user population of it that felt like it was like by the young, for the young and the adults who were presenting it to young people didn't feel like adults exactly or like they were they were so behind the scenes that I don't think it really ever occurred to anyone um that they were being sold to just like just like they were with any other aspect of like more formalized popularized teen culture oh yeah I think what you've nailed something which really uh illustrates that transition which is you know your hanging out outside the subway in Camden was my hanging around Harvard Square magazine racks and just like, you know, being out and about in the plenty of places to go, like lots of record stores back then, lots of comic shops, lots of like, I mean, I, I there's a musician I interview in the, the show, Damien Krakowski, who I think on his, on his sub, on his uh, sub stack, he he listed that Harvard Square alone had something like 50 bookshops like back in the 
80s or something. And like now it's probably mm. two or three. But you had all these physical spaces that you could go in, say, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004. And young people could hang out and gather there. And what social media did in those early years is it kind of like gave you this cheat code to meet people that you would other, otherwise mingle with. So if you're a musician who is 28 and you want to meet 14-year-old girls, well, MySpace allows you to search for women in your area who are between the <laughs> yeah. ages of 13 and 15. So there you go. And you can, you're a musician. So what is your strategy to get your music out? Well, the strategy, like a very kind of DIY ethic that, again, the zine culture kind of transitioning to this like corporate social media space, you didn't have algorithms necessarily that you could harness to like amplify, but you had like very kind of like uh, to a, a, cl a clever musician who wants their, their name out there. And, and this would go for everyone, not just like the sleazy ones. I think it's like they would just add tons and tons of people as friends and for someone who's just a music lover not not a musician themselves you'd see this band who just added you and be like huh i wonder who they are and maybe listen to their tracks and like that's mm -hmm. all it takes and in those years like you know this might have been the the, the early moment of of myspace 2004 about the time of like 2005 2006 2007 that's when musicians were getting discovered on the site. So that's mm. when like the element of celebrity creeps in and people are very specific about how they're, um, how, how they're getting their music out there because they know A&R people are, are just like scrolling it like everybody else. And countless musicians were just like discovered on MySpace because it was funny. The, the funny thing is like for, as limited search capacity as it had, as limited, like no real algorithmic layer that kind of like broadcasted the the most uh, most liked or anything like that. The, the, that instead of algorithms, you had like legitimate popularity. So if you if you were a musician who obsessively like clicked, click, 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 add friends and had like you know thousands of friends, you were more likely to get discovered because someone would see, oh, this person has a lot of friends. They've, they've got a lot of friends or basically fans. Um, mm. That's like how Tila Tequila became fa famous on MySpace, really just like manually adding as friends. And all of a sudden, when you've got all these people as your friend, they know who you are. And that is celebrity. Yeah. Mm. And of course, because there's not like the kind of incredible kind of proliferation of it as well. So there was no saturation. So like now, like trying to kind of like if you're like a new musician, you're trying to kind of get your stuff seen, um, seen on social media, it's going to be absolutely drowned out by like the sea of content. Yeah. And this is like this is like the primordial soup of content. This is like this is before before it was yeah. the sea. So now if you're a musician, you want to get your stuff out there. What you've got to do is make front facing TikToks amass a following that way and then say oh by the way i also make music yeah you've also got to just do loads of other stuff besides the music right and so yeah. it's kind of yeah. like 
um, yeah, and it's not to say like I, I I feel, and this is actually where I uh, this might be sort of like an interesting way to ask like another question, which was how when you're sort of making this pod making podcast like this, how do you kind of like avoid the temptation to like over romanticize? Because like I think you you know throughout the podcast you do sort of reinforce several times that like MySpace definitely had like its fair share of like major problems. Um, there was like a, like part of the sort of transition towards different platforms did kind of emerge out of those types of, out of the types of problems that were embedded in the platform. Um, obviously like during the time it's situated, we're having like far less conversations about, or far fewer conversations about, um, the place of like people of color on social media platforms or LGBTQ plus people on social media platforms. Um, but I did wonder how, like, yeah, how how you sort of like navigated when you were sort of like constructing the podcast series, were there any like, how did you sort of avoid the temptation to over romanticize a platform that I guess a lot of people seem to be like fairly nostalgic for not least because of the social media platforms we that we have now? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Because you can break down the nostalgia into many different forms, like nostalgia for the age, which I think is a, a fair enough nostalgia that, you know, Back in 2004, you could get an apartment for much cheaper in virtually any city in the world. Um, and you could kind of, there. I, I certainly know from my life in Chicago and Boston, um, it was possible to just like have a job at a record store and still pay rent in a city. And that's not a reality anymore. <laughs> oh, so oh, it's goodness, like yeah. <laughs> this sense of like being an artist in that era meant something different because the, yeah. the pressures to to earn, to have like not just a day job, but like a day job that makes a considerable sum of money. Mm. Um, a white collar day job is like, it's, it's, it's a very different time. So that's part of the nostalgia. Nostalgia for um, an internet that doesn't have this, this tracking layer that the, you know, what, what people would call surveillance capitalism, um, that doesn't have the, the layers of algorithms, the, the sense of hopelessness of algorithms, where going back to like the creative, the creative um, endeavors, if you want to be a musician and, or me as an author, like, thankfully, I don't have these kind of publicists, but I know a lot of authors get like, mm. told, oh, you should get on TikTok. And what do you do? Like, if you have zero followers on TikTok, and you want to sell a book, you're not going to sell like, you'll have like five people watch oh your God. video. It's like, yeah, it's a, it's a, like, it's basically like, sh yeah, it's like shouting out to someone. Yeah. Oh, you've got to. Yeah, you've got to. You've got to do got, all these to, kind of yeah. things. You've got to like. <laughs> yes, you've got to start a beef, or you've got to be like the person who has some like weird gimmick, which is like, oh, you always go mm. to a store carrying like a, a toy panda or something. You know, it's just like you've got to be like all these things, and then that's like another job on top of your like promotional yeah, job, exactly. which, is, which is again like yeah. an author and. 2023 mm. is doing all this yeah. work that like a publicist in at least, 2003 yeah. might have done. I, get, I guess it leads me to like a secondary question about where MySpace is, like how you sort of saw MySpace being situated. Because I think like that point about how being on a social media platform now, and we talk a lot about this in different contexts on our episode about how like how posting kind of is sort of different, like, like operates different forms of labor. Um, and much of which you are sort of either coerced into or you sort of like find that kind of the cost of participation comes with like having to sort of like do this labor to even be able to participate anyway. And my kind of understanding, having friends who were in bands 
um, and trying to make out out of like my Harvard Square, my Camden Town, which was like uh, the Priory set shopping center in Dartford Town, less glamorous, Incredible. I imagine, than <laughs> either of those places. Um, but you know, they were trying to make it out, and like MySpace was like a really good way of them getting gigs in like. Um, I think like the the best place they played a gig in was actually in the Camden Barfly. Um, so like you know, I think that was pretty. I was pretty good, maybe. I don't know. I never. I never went. Um, but you know, so for them, it was like, oh, my like MySpace is like this really good way of finally actually getting this music that we kind of play in pubs to like disgruntled old guys who like don't give a shit about us. Um, and getting that publicity, they, I guess they never really saw it as labor. Whereas now I think that like, if you're a musician and you're sort of like having to upload stuff onto Spotify, onto SoundCloud, and you're also having to do all this promo stuff, um, in order to just like be able to maybe eventually make somewhat of a living on your music, you know, and even the idea of like making a living off your music is just so laughable now. Um, it really does represent like quite a significant transition. And I wondered whether like during that sort of MySpace period, does it does part of the nostalgia sort of come out of this idea that at this point of time, people aren't seeing it as a platform that is necessarily kind of, you know, it, it is not necessarily like economic, like fixed into the broader economy. It almost operates as like something else, which is also why, and I think as you mentioned in like several of your episodes, the ways in which like mainstream media engage with MySpace stuff tends to be like with kind of either like awe or shock or horror or like lots of sort of, um, you know, this this weird kind of dangerous website that uh is might cause harm to your children it almost feels like secondary whereas now like the social media platforms we deal with are very much kind of embedded into everything we do uh at a time when like everything we do is effectively like a form of work oh yeah that is a great question and it summarizes like what i think is the heart of like what people's obsession with myspace is today and that's like myspace was not professionalized Tom was not professionalized. I mean, the fact that like we can make fun of like Chris and Tom, the founders, these like, like goofy dudes um, that just kind of like failed upwards and, you know, pretty self-evident. What makes them kind of endearing figures is that they haven't reinvented themselves as like, online ethics experts like there's no like myspace tom <laughs> center of internet goodness or, or you know like he's not going to like the aspen ideas festival and be like well on myspace we did this this and this like he is not one of those kind of guys and that's no. there's like a breath of fresh air because like we have this like silicon valley mindset now that like they can do any kind of harm possible and then five years later, you show up at the Aspen Ideas Festival and say, oops, well, you know, we learned this. And now this is why you need to um, read my white paper on, you yeah. know, <laughs> internet privacy in the global south or like whatever. Like they're just like such it, it's 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 like the Harvard mindset. It's a Stanford mindset. It's like this like sense of like we are the bosses at every moment. We are the at first the bosses of this social media empire and then we are going to be you know the 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 policy experts or, or whatever it, it's like that that's the there is none of that attached to myspace so i think like i'm sorry i'm moving away from the other part of your question um but <laughs> uh yeah it, it, it's just uh, that to me when i go back to these years i i found that really refreshing that being that being able to joke about it 
being able to joke about MySpace because it shouldn't be that serious. It shouldn't be that like critical. But at the same time, you know, like this content, um, you know, now what social media companies are are basically like traps to get you to post to create a corpus for AI companies. I mean, that's basically yeah. what the reality we're living in right now. Yeah. So that's just another element that that you know the idea was was so nation even 10 years ago it wouldn't have necessarily occurred to people that this is what our content would do um and then but but the tricky thing and i i think another part of that question was about like the, the sense of of snobbery out outside of myspace and, and yes that there was a lot of stigma about myspace users which goes to the youth culture, uh, a lot of other elements, but that lack of being professionalized, the, the sense that you could be a, a kid on that site and still just be a kid and not try to get a an A in MySpace posting, you know what I mean? Like that's, mm. that, the, that's the difference, the sense of a, a, a sites that are professionalized, even Twitter, which like professionalized if you're a media professional you have to have like a twitter brand and maybe it's a snarky brand maybe it's someone mm -hmm. who like is always like got the right kind of response to whoever the main character of the day is like that's like still a professionalized space youtube mm -hmm. is still a professionalized space like podcasting could be a professionalized space myspace really was just hanging out yeah and mm -hmm. i i wonder if part if part of that is how untext based it was because um because i don't think it's i don't think it's like at all a small point that it were that it was developed around the time that the internet was just getting a lot better this is one of those kind of practical mechanical um pieces of context which sort of often gets kind of hand waved away but is also really really important and really significant that it just so happened that it was possible to upload music clips and pictures and even like i think even like short very short videos yeah. very short terrible quality videos um but like but animations and all and all that sort of thing which sort of just sort of was not possible on on what is kind of loosely called the blogosphere which again is like a is a sort of it's that's like a weird uh, phantom that has been kind of imposed on it after the fact because they there was no there was no linkedness to like people having blogs it was just people making use of these very kind of basic html tools to kind of carve out their own very very text-based mm. space or like online that was how you kind of set out your set out your stool on the you know on the kind of the mm in the within sort of digital infrastructure and then myspace was so kind of multimedia um and then and then we had facebook and then we had twitter both of which well facebook was obviously you know it was somewhere that you could put pictures etc but it was much more kind of streamlined in its aesthetics it was much more kind of grown up in its aesthetics and then twitter text-based and then you have the kind of so it's so interesting how you have these kind of great kind of rolling uh kind of culture changes from text to image back to text over to video back to text then back to like then back to video again um 
and it all just it all just sort of seems to uh to to be kind of expressive of the fact that people that people seem to have this kind of sort of historical impulse to uh, leave versions of themselves out in out in public that's that there's you want people want to carve out something that you can look that you can look at and form a kind of idea of their of their character of who they are it's like it's like a kind of people people sort of use it as a kind of as a way of kind of a dynamically constructed epitaph so like this idea that like after you're gone there will still be this digital footprint um and i think i think that's that feels like a very like a very very ancient impulse and it's just something that the internet has made more possible as opposed to particularly either particularly accelerating or even generating those kinds of impulses yeah yeah and the, and the <clears throat> the reason we do talk about it in the past is that we have like a pretty solid transition into this era around 2008 because three things happen you have the great recession you have iPhones smartphones in general becoming massively popular and then you have at least in, in the US it was like president obama is elected and he is uh supported broadly by a, a number of these still early but still quite uh quite enormous tech companies like google and uh and facebook are 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 some of his strongest supporters so he's not necessarily going to like be the one to crack down on what they're doing with with ad targeting and things like that um, mm. But I think that moment of like the Great Recession and the smartphones, especially, you have internet always with you. It's in your pocket. And that was kind of a breakthrough that now you don't have to wait and have like go back home on like a Thursday night. You're like posting something in a forum. You're posting when you're at home. You're You're just like documenting your day and that means you're posting way way more uh mm. very ordinary everyday observations um especially with instagram and twitter those those first years of posts like were pretty commonly just hey i, I went to this movie and i thought this and you know here's a picture of something i saw on my walk like very um not quite with that influencer layer yet not quite with like staging not quite building a persona necessarily. It was just a lot of just hanging out as you might have on MySpace, but like 24 seven posting of that, of, of kind of like your daily life. Um, mm. And then the great recession, what, what happened there is like a, a very interesting moment in that uh, investors no longer really want to invest in, in, in banks or, or real estate or, or other kind of companies and, and tech, which had been a risk because of the dot-com crash uh, mm -hmm. 10 year, almost 10 years prior, um, all of a sudden tech is not really any riskier than real estate. So investors are flocking to Silicon Valley and investing in these companies. And that just gave them a leg up. Um, uh, and while many of them were, were still, I would say that Facebook and Google were still pretty big companies in 2008, like they just grew from big to enormous. Uh, and 
So, so these are like the, the transitions that you can see where MySpace, even if there wasn't a threat like Facebook, there might have been another social network. There might have been a number. It, it might not have been able to adapt to 24-7 smartphone um, posting styles because I, I don't think MySpace was ever built to... No to do that like that it just mm. it was so much about <laughs> testimonials it was so much about like thinking things through and sending someone a message that you spent a lot of time thinking about it wasn't done it was it wasn't that like it, it was casual but it wasn't casual in the sense of like oh i just thought of something i'm gonna post it immediately like, that's that's mm. a very different style Mm. Yeah, I I wonder if like part of because like obviously like I know there was like there was lots of harassment, there was lots of bullying, there was lots of racism, there was lots of adult men sourcing using it as a kind of market a sort of marketplace source for teenage girls, like lots of bad stuff, lots of amplification of social harms, but with such technological ease of access. Um, but I do wonder if the social harm a bit would have been. Uh, sort of significantly amplified if there had ever been a significant MySpace mobile presence uh, in the way that I don't because there was there was ne there was definitely never a MySpace app. That's right, isn't it? But you could access it on the earliest smartphones, but presumably it was like even jankier if you tried to do that. Yeah, I, I don't actually remember. I think you could definitely see it in Safari, but I would imagine that. At, at some point, they probably had a mobile version for the web, but I, I, just, I just can't imagine it was very good, um, especially mm. because like so many of the applications were looking at things like, um, well, clicking on music players, like I, I don't know if those would have worked on, on the mobile apps. Like I, mm. I, I'd have to double check, but I, I, my understanding is they did just did not have like a mobile strategy. Yeah, no, no, like my, like, mm. yeah, my, my memory of it was that it was that you could sort of get onto it, but it basically, like, but it basically didn't work because there wasn't any, there wasn't any particular interest in, 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 in mobile strategy or in, mm. uh, or in kind of, you know, it sort of getting, getting into people's lives in the way that later, later social apps were like so, so interested in mm. like, how to kind of how to how to keep their users as power users how to how to get your power users addicted how to distort and poison their brains and how to yeah. keep them addicted to app goes ping and there wasn't yeah there, di there didn't seem to be a particular addictive strategy either beyond mm. Beyond like, oh, they're going to enjoy it as a kind of place to hang out. So they're yeah. going to carry on doing it much in the way that they would carry on doing it if they, if they meet, if they kind of make friends with people who like they kind of find sympathetic. There wasn't, it, it didn't feel, it, it never, it never felt like there was a sort of particular kind of, uh, I've used the word villainous several times now, but like there's, there, there was, a, there was any kind of particular villainy behind it. Mm. Um, but that actually, um, just makes me think of what my next question was, which is another thing that I was interested in, which is how arbitrary it was that MySpace was the one that emerged the victor. And there's something very kind of, I guess like kind of, um, like a very kind of first century 
first century religious cults about it. There's sort of lots of them kind of knocking around the place and then and then one just sort of sort of made sense and that was the one, and that was the one that succeeds. And it's really easy particularly in view of what of Hussein's very good point earlier about um about how not to look back on this time period with uh with too much nostalgia and too and too rose tinted a view of it but also that we inevitably think about myspace with the knowledge of what came next yeah. of like so so say mm. you're a say you are a now bear with me. This analogy does work, and I am going somewhere with it. Um, say you are a uh, you are a very very early church father, and you are writing about um, about the proliferation of uh, say Eastern mystery cults in uh, in and around Rome and Judea in the in the first in the first century BC. Now, as far as you're concerned, because Christianity to you is the true religion, and that's the one that everyone was always going to be working towards because that is the truth. And so it's a sort of self-evident, uh, self-evident kind of circle of logic there. So anything you write about this period is colored by what you think is the search towards the, the, the contemporary time and what you think of as the contemporary perfect truth. And I think it's really, really easy when we're looking at the destruction wrought um wrought by facebook um the uh the shall we say uh patchy uh pros and cons of twitter and then obviously kind of lastly kind of elon's twitter uh if we start looking at kind of tiktok and all of these things it's really really easy to start to start thinking about myspace as this kind of purer time as opposed to the mm. almost arbitrary uh, progenitor yeah of the kind of the of the of, of the kind of of the present of the present circumstance because it could because like because again another thing that sorry i keep like sort of saying no, no, no. another thing that i thought was really interesting in your podcast um was your point about how it could have been friendster but it wasn't friendster because there was one user pretty much it was pretty much kind of great man of history stuff there was one user who abandoned friendster and was like i'm doing myspace instead and that was how myspace overtook friendster as being the platform which is so interesting it, to me it's so it's it's so bonkers that tequila tequila had that much power i mean it actually, <laughs> yeah. like considering <laughs> where is she is now insane it's yeah like, it, it's it's really just like her her life is a fable of the internet. It's just it's crazy. It's really yeah. nutty. Just like how much power she had, and that it, it goes to show like the. It also goes to show that like the, the friendster way of being kind of top down, and and they they were cracking down on fakesters, people who like impersonated celebrities. They were, they were making it like feel very school hall monitor style as opposed to like breaking up harassment or uh, my understanding is they really weren't curbing like the white supremacists on the side <laughs> but they were definitely <laughs> kicking you off if you were uh posting as marilyn monroe or something like that like things like that would happen so anyways tila tequila got kicked off friendster constantly she was just constantly getting kicked off the site because she had too many friends, according to them. And also she was <laughs> she wore like really like she was she was a 
car show model. She was like, she was, she was a booth babe. So like she's dressed and like, to, to, uh, as she would dress to work on the site and like Friendster did not like this. And so my understanding again, like, is that she never really created trauma on Friendster. She was just there to hang out. But Friendster mm. had a problem with Tila Tequila, and she eventually joined MySpace and said, hey, join me here. I don't want to get kicked off Friendster anymore. I'm going to MySpace. And people followed her. It, like Having a, a super user like that, like nowadays people are savvy about like influencers and like how much power someone who has a big following like that actually has. Like that you could leave Twitter, you could start a Substack, you can leave... Uh, if you have a following that there are limits to what platforms they'll join you on, but some people really do have, have strong followings. And like, if people are going to Friendster trying to hang out with this cool model um, and they can't do that anymore, they, they're just going to go to a different social network because like that, that's what they if the, if that's what you want to do online you're you're going to go to this other social network it's that offers basically the same functionality um but yeah it it, it is it, tequila tequila is a really tricky character to to talk about too because uh nowadays she's really it's it's very sad what happened to her and it, she had her fiance died unexpectedly she had a lot of trauma um in her life. And unfortunately, in recent years, she has been, well, she is, she's, she's a white supremacist. She's, she's, she's done like Nazi salute stuff, really Mm. disgusting stuff. I didn't Mm. want to interview her is like, to be honest, like people are like, Mm. are you going to interview her? I'm like, I I just, I don't need that right now. (laughs) I don't need to give her someone who one unifying aspect of her life is that she has been really driven to be the, uh, on TV, on camera, I, I, I would have expected she might have said yes, but I, I just mm-hmm. didn't want to have to deal with ethics of like sense, like dealing with how to best um, edit someone who who it has been so so. I mean, I, I, yeah, like I'm rambling now, but it was like it was definitely uh, something I thought about, and I just I, like I don't need this because like that's mm. where if that's where she's at right now, I I can't deal with interviewing <laughs> this person. Like, I don't think I don't think you're rambling at all, and it's the and it's the issue that anybody, when they are um when they're kind of formulating any kind of media project, has to has to reckon with, which is with it, which is what is my goal here? Do I want to do I want to present all of this information in this kind of in this sort of dispassionate way? Here are all of the here are all here are all of the here are all of the facts here are all the information and you know and you can and you can do what you like with it um and when it comes to i mean i like i, th- I think that i think that tequila, uh, tequila tequila is is very very unwell um and is somebody to be to be greatly pitied i think that's my that's my sort of take on her but also by the same token you can't you what uh, like at what at what point do you say well i will talk to you as long as you don't say any like weird hitler shit like as long as you don't do that then we can talk but otherwise at what point are you then uh are you then legitimizing things that someone has said using the kind of interview format if presumably you're not planning on going in 
um, and then like challenging every single thing that she's ever said in public because that's that's not an interview that's an ambush yeah and so i think it's so i so i think i think i think it does make sense to like decide what point of view you want you want your own media project to have because it's 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 not so it's not it, like people people pretend that like the job of um of people either in kind of broadcasting or writing is just to kind of is just to report and I think that's a I think that's a kind of self-defeating and self-deluding idea just just in general I don't yeah. think it's really something mm. that can be done yeah. um, and I think people who say no, no 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 but I am the only one who can do it I am the only one who is free of bias. Never trust someone who thinks they are free, <laughs> free from bias. They are uh, because they are either very, very stupid or a liar. I was sort of talking about talking about rambling. That was uh, that was a very, very long way of saying no. I think that makes perfect sense, and um, I wouldn't particularly. I wouldn't particularly care to talk to her either. I have no interest in what she has to say. Yeah. Um, well, I think it was also my my feeling was she probably changes depending on who she's talking to so like maybe she would have like held back mm. on all the nazi stuff yeah, talking maybe, to me, yeah like, and then maybe like, someone else i don't know yeah or she, or know. she might yeah or she know. might have apologized yeah. for it yeah or, but honestly it's just about like how much how much can she give you and what mm. and what are you going to be able to be able to do with it because if mm. you because if you say, okay, well, tell us about your time on, on MySpace. Why did you choose MySpace? Why not Friendster? What was it like to be the first kind of MySpace celebrity? There's nothing that you can really get from her, which is not information, which is perfectly possible to glean in a kind of third party, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Third party sense. So why not just, why not just do it like that? Mm. Yeah. I wanted to ask, I, I wanted to ask about what, well, and this sort of like feeds into kind of the broader myth that, tech companies sort of tell themselves. And I was thinking about like, I, I mean, I, I was thinking a lot about the social network as in like the film, the social network and around about that time, sort of the, uh, the, the myth that like of the ascension of Facebook apparently was the result of like MySpace not kind of catching up with the moment and like much of that film and the book that sort of preceded it sort of seems to argue that what like, like Zuckerberg and all his kind of buddies in Harvard sort of realized was that, like people didn't want the independent or like people in quote quotation marks didn't want to sort of like have this independent autonomy over their social networks. They didn't want to like customize. They didn't want to, you know, uh, add music to their profiles and stuff. What they wanted to do was be part of quote unquote, like a real social network. And so the uniformity, I remember at the time, the argument being like, no, the uniformity is actually really good because it means that like, you know, um, you won't, uh, no one gets more attention than someone else. Everyone sort of looks the same. It's, an e it's a quote unquote, like equal playing field. Right. Um, and like, I remember how that was sort of like, you know, valorized and sort of, you know, you know, Zuckerberg was praised for kind of recognizing this kind of major shift and the idea that people wanted to connect and MySpace was good at connecting certain people, but it wasn't kind of, it didn't do enough to be able to do that. And I think it's an interesting thing to sort of look back on, especially considering, how we now know or how we now understand what Facebook kind of considers to be connecting. I think as you both alluded to, uh, the ways in which like the 
you know, the purpose of this type of connection really being about data harvesting, uh, now training AIs for like, you're now training like language models for AI tools and stuff, and really just sort of like commoditizing the, like, or commodifying the individual. Um, but I wondered, like, one of the things that you sort of say in your podcast, but also you've kind of tweeted and written about this a few times, is the ways in which, like, capital really got to sort of determine who succeeded and who didn't. And like, so this idea that like, no, MySpace has naturally died because they weren't sort of like, you know, they, they, they weren't able to sort of predict the moment it, it, you know, and at the same time, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, like there are old social media networks that kind of continue to exist, you know, Tumblr sort of probably being the most prominent example, but I guess this broader idea that like, no, venture capital does get to determine who survives and who doesn't and for fit. And for like lots of these VC firms that uh, really came out as the winners post 2008, um, Facebook really served exactly what they wanted in terms of exclusivity, in terms of like the type of clientele it represented, the prestige that came with that. And I wondered whether you could talk to us a bit more just about like why that now, why the sort of narrative of like Facebook just naturally be being like a better tool to use has kind of still, still kind of really permeates and like the political implicate or like the political effects of that have really, to my mind, have been that lots of social media networks following the sort of Facebook model have been really able to kind of uh, accrue like political advantages, despite like all the kind of real material harms that they cause, which like, you know, say what you will about MySpace, like, yeah, I don't think it's sort of been you can sort of say that it's responsible for kind of causing like international catastrophes or anything to that scale. Oh yeah. That, that summarizes it really, really well. Um, your question there. And I, I think, you know, this is again, someone who grew up outside of Massachusetts, my point of view, but like, I've always thought of Facebook as being just like Harvard in, uh, in social media form as like all of these lies that people tell themselves about being the best, you know, you got perfect SATs because your parents could afford to get someone to train you like on Thursday nights for the SATs. It's it's all these like advantages that people have. And then once they receive some like honor that is much more, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> if you look under the hood, there's a lot more to it, but it, it sounds like an honor. Um that that's Facebook's story, and it's it's been the story since Mark Zuckerberg has been at Harvard, and he created a site that was for networking as opposed to just hanging out. Mm -hmm. A lot of just like connecting with people who are also useful to you, who might be friends, and like I think a lot of that that change just that we were talking about before that that moment in the aughts where you, I, I mean, part of this is is where I am, my, my heart, my, uh, class position, I would say, but like, it's just like, it, it can be very hard to find people who you just hang out with for the sake of hanging out as mm -hmm. opposed to, uh, someone who is useful to you, who can, you know, provide opportunities somewhere along the line. And I, I think that that sense of collecting people who are useful to you, felt like it was like Facebook's main agenda. And and one mm. thing that it it set out pretty early is because it was so closely affiliated with elite universities in the United States, parents didn't mind it because they want mm. their kids to go to Harvard. They want their kids to go to Stanford. So if this is another opportunity to, well, mm. I mean, parents meaning like upper middle class white parents, that's where they want their kids to go to school. 
um, they don't mind their kids hanging out on Facebook because that means they're getting closer to this like elite mix of people. Um, Mm. And that was, there were a few kind of like sociologists at the time who talked about like white flight from MySpace to Facebook. And the the problem I have with that research is it just sounds like it just happened that like the white people all Mm. left and the stigma upon the users is not really discussed in the, in the, in these, in this research. And I think the stigma is really crucial to know because you would, you would open up the New York times and you would see an article about like, well, you know, all these trailer trash people on MySpace and like, and yeah, like that, that's a really disgusting way to, to talk about kids. I mean, it was, it was just like, because there were so many people of color, musicians of color, artists of color, as well as just like, People who were not rich, but all of a sudden, you know, if you were working class, you could possibly afford a computer and afford the internet. It was like, it was within like accessible in the sense that like a TV, uh, Netflix account is accessible. Like computers became much more accessible to uh, broader broader communities of people. So these Mm -hmm. people are, are online, visible online, and they are stigmatized in the media um for just like hanging out like kids as opposed to acting like you know model un representatives you know that's (laughs) (laughs) yeah no no no, for for sure i mean like yeah calling someone trailer trash is a disgusting way to talk about anyone not just kids but 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 particularly particularly sharpened when you're talking about when you're talking about children uh it yeah i think that the this kind of sense of accessibility was something that was um, uh, was sort of really kind of deemed to be a kind of a contaminant. It's like, oh, if we make culture accessible, you know, like then, like then what? Then what? Then do we have to what? Listen to like, just like some person's music? I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't, don't want to do that at all. Um, which is presumably, which is presumably sort of part of the part of the the meaning behind this kind of tenor. Um, I like this idea that um. That MySpace was the kind of digitization of zine culture, and Facebook is the digitization of the alumni association. Um, I think that's a very, I think, <laughs> I think that's a very, I think it's a very important point that it was like set up <laughs> to look like it was, look like it was networking, which is very funny for a site which was set up originally as like a creepy, like a kind of oh, yeah. creepy horny <laughs> site. A creepy horny red girl site and just like and like that it's, it, it's the it's the power of a good pr strategy oh, yeah. that you're able to turn that into yeah like if you connect with people on facebook then uh you're going to be able to get your kid into stanford like ha, like ha, like what a leap what an incredible leap to have made i'm very conscious that we are running we are running mm. to time um so i would just like to just rit- talk just ask both of you about your experiences on MySpace before we close out as like a kind of Joanne do you want to go do you want to go first kind of fun yeah. tell me about your tell me about your MySpace pages I had you know I was I was into art and music and independent film and I I had just moved to Chicago and I met so many people who I, I could just like see 
movie at a revival house with. And like, yeah, I, I just had all these kind of adventures with people that I, I legitimately met as friends. And I, I felt like mm-hmm. it was, it was, I had positive experiences because it, it happened to like, it started at a moment in my life that I, I needed to be out in the world and meet people. And it really gave mm-hmm. like, and it also gave this sense of like, um, they weren't so crucially embedded in my life that if anything was mm-hmm. weird about them, I could kind of like, you know, we, we talk about ghosting now as like a really terrible thing, but like mm-hmm. in certain cases you might meet someone think they're a little bit odd. And if you don't have any other like connection to them, mm. they can just like disappear. And that's just like a funny story. And so like, mm. I, I, I had, I had a great time on MySpace, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, mine was the very typical, like suburban type of experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. so I had some emo music that I didn't really like very much, uh, on there, but I was desperately trying to like be friends with the people I felt were like alternative. Uh, and, uh, it had very moderate success in the sense that I did get some, you know, uh, you know, PC for PCs and, you know, some follow follows and everything. Uh, I did make it onto a couple of like very coveted top eights in like our local area. I was very proud of that. Still very much am. Um, uh, <laughs> there were photos of me with like, you know, via the digital camera and the, you know, you would sort of take the photo, uh, your arm would go up. I don't know what type of, because like the POV shot, uh, but like the very typical MySpace shot. This one. Um, <laughs> like this one with my head tilted. Um, I tried desperately to grow my hair out to grow an emo fringe and, um, I just couldn't do it. And I realized it was because like my type of hairstyle, the South, like South Asian hairstyle, it it does, it grows really fast, but it grows in a very awkward way. And I also didn't know, or I didn't realize at the time, but oh no, all these emo kids like spend so much time on their hair. Like, incredibly yeah. <laughs> so much I just, so I was just like oh they, they, they must just get that shit naturally and I felt really bad no, about it and then no, no, yeah, no. The- <laughs> it's a whole it's a whole procedure because uh, like, yeah. um, emo, emo was like at the very kind of tail end of me being a t- of me being a teenager I wasn't an, okay. I wasn't I wasn't into emo stuff I was a punk but also like have the I he's saying as you know i feel your pain i also have i also have south asian hair and it just it doesn't do it it doesn't doesn't do do, it doesn't doesn't. do any of the shapes that i wanted it to do yeah so if i wanted like if i wanted like a rockabilly quiff i had to like put i had to spray coke into it and like roll it around my hand (laughs) until until it was like 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 kind of solid in in the in this in the center of my head and like i what i once tried like some like not like a not like a mohawk but like you know like the girls mohawk where yeah. you had like the mm. at the side um yeah, yeah. and it lasted for like two seconds and it was just like no i'm just yeah, gonna yeah, fall yeah. out i use a lot of my mom, regular shape <laughs> i use a lot of my mom's hairspray which didn't work but it made her very yeah, angry with me it doesn't, it doesn't work it doesn't, no, it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> work i also ga- i also gave my i also gave myself uh, mm. quite serious poisoning um by putting safety pins in my ears oh, um, oh my god which my which my mum was like she was really relaxed about it. she said look it's yeah, fine you want to look like an idiot look like an idiot it's, this is this is the time mm. when you can look like an idiot this is you know this is your time to do so uh, but just disinfect them 
before you put them in your ear. That's, That's the only advice. thing That's I ask you. This is good advice. This is good advice. This is not good advice if you yeah. give it to a 16 year old. Um, and I was like, no, you're just yeah. you're you're just trying to control me. And so I just put the so I just put these safety pins in my ear piercings yeah. that I found just in the medicine cup, like in the medicine cupboard in my house. God knows what was on these things, um, and yeah, that was a, oh, that was a whole oh, that was a whole horrible. scene. So like, yeah. so like, I quite often like I am like quite glad that there was no such thing as MySpace when I was a teenager because I yeah. definitely would have yeah, yeah, more yeah. or less instantly made friends with a group of much older men who would have been like, "Oh, you're so mature, yeah, because like I was into stuff that." Okay. older men were into right, right, right and this is definitely something which was just like yeah which was just there as a thing even when i was a teenager with no internet so if i'd had like access to this stuff um then like i would have absolutely i would have been they'd have made a documentary out of me like just like straight off i mean i know we only have a few minutes left uh, although running over time but i do have like a sad story uh which was that the first girl that i really had a crush on uh, was a MySpace girl who um, who uh, ended up dating. She so we were like 15, 16 at the time. I think she was mm-hmm. like fifteen, and she started quote unquote dating a twenty five year old. Uh, uh, also met from MySpace, a very sort of like you know lanky emo boy uh, who had all the right you know uh, lyrics and also wore a stud belt and everything. Um, and it was a very heartbreaking moment for me. Probably not for the reasons that now I kind of like uh yeah maybe some people should have really some people yeah. should have really uh really some paid people should attention have been, to that yeah really been intervening although yeah. having said that i don't know if anyone has ever tried to intervene with a teenage girl you basically can't do it yeah it's, uh, um, yeah i mean because but, like if you, if, yeah. you pre- if you prevent them from going out yeah. then then you've basically built yourself a prison because <laughs> yeah. then you are stuck in the house so I with listen, a teenage yeah. girl who you have whose life you have ruined yeah um, so i listened i listened to a lot of emo music that i actually didn't really like very much like screamo music but I didn't really like very much. All to try Just impress, this yeah. All to try impress this oh, girl who uh, who ended up uh, going out with a twenty five year old with a beat up VW, and who I considered for like the 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 uh, the, the, the months of that summer of two thousand and two thousand and six to be my sworn enemy, and I felt that my heartbreak would never heal, uh, and I'd purposely be ruined. And I wrote a very emo poem. After that, um, I still have oh, a copy no. of it somewhere. I'm not. Go- I'm not going to read it out. Uh, I'm going to add that to a special bonus I wouldn't, tip. I wouldn't. I wouldn't ask you to. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're a hundred dollar subscriber, you can. You can get. You can get Hussein's yeah. poem, heartbreak yeah. poem. So um, yeah, that was my. That was my MySpace experience. And I think a few weeks afterwards, I started the sixth one, and everyone was like, "Hey, have you heard about this website called Facebook?" Uh, that's when that's when uh that's when the 2007 uh uh transformers film came out with that with that ending sequence of uh uh that lincoln park song and that was when my life uh entered its and that new was track. when your life but and that was when your life began i like the idea of it being like oh you know have you heard about this new thing called facebook and that's the pff, that's the end of the film because like that's, that's what you got that's what you got to finish it that's <laughs> um, right that's right my my singular my, well i had a, i had a myspace which i used as like a kind of blogging platform i like had some like i kind of used it as a kind of proto facebook i had like i was like friends with people that i knew i was like i was too i was too old to like be meeting new people on on myspace i had some pictures of myself i wrote um i wrote I, i'm quite sad about having lost having lost this in the in the data loss but i wrote i wrote an article about how 
uh, about how, how about September the 11th had ruined the feel-good film and there was no such thing as feel-good films anymore apart from like very, very specific like dance films or jukebox films. That was like, that was where films were going on the fe- on the feel-good front. There would be, never be another John Hughes. Um, so I thought this was an interesting point when I was 20 or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but one thing that I did with some friends when MySpace was like, was at its like kind of peak, we thought it would be interesting to see if we could uh, persuade, how many people we could persuade that we had started a band and a band that had that didn't exist. Um, <laughs> and so we came up with a band name and we took some like pictures of ourselves, like kind of doing this, like kind of, you know, by a kind of concrete wall. And we recorded like some like snippets of some like, just like, literally just like us kind of saying stuff over um like over like a phone ringtone i think um but like enough that you would think that this was like a kind of snippet of a song we um like we added loads of friends we had a whole section which were all other made up band names of people that you could compare us to and uh we were just like we we're just interested to see if we could like if we could kind of persuade people that we were that this was a this was a kind of real band, and our one big success was we got contacted by um by a well known musician, but at the time we didn't know that he was just somebody who just literally was just a MySpace power user. We were not aware of this, so we thought this was really cool. Um, who contacted us and asked us to um sent him our demo and we kind of had a bit of kind of back and forth with this guy for a bit um and then we sort of got got bored of maintaining it um and kind of let it kind of let it kind of you know kind of fall fallow and i remember some years later having found out that somebody i knew had had run an extremely complicated, extremely impressive, and extremely depressing and upsetting catfish situation. And I remember thinking, how could you be bothered? Like it's, how <laughs> yeah. can you be bothered to, cause like it was, it, it felt even at the time, even kind of before, before Facebook, um, before, before Twitter sort of took off in any kind of reasonable way, the idea of maintaining this other version of yourself that you sent out into the kind of digital space to stand for you, to stand in for you. That was you. That was your, that was kind of one aspect of your, of your kind of avatar. Like that was enough of a pain. Like the idea of maintaining something that like wasn't real. I just couldn't imagine where you found the energy to do it. And that's my, Mm. that is my final (laughs) thought on on the yeah. MySpace era, I think. On on that note, uh, we should probably wrap up. So Joanne, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And thank you so much for, well, also just thank you so much for making this uh, this podcast and continuing to make episodes. Uh, it's re- It was really, really good. There's like so much we could have talked about. And we, I'd actually, I think it'd be really cool to like have you back on, like to uh, sort of continue this conversation in some form. So uh, yeah, I just to say thank you again. And if people do want to listen to your podcast or read any of the work that you've done, how can they do that? Uh, best place is my my name joannemcneil.com but thanks so much for having me this has been such a fun conversation 
Yeah. Uh, thank you so and, much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you again. I just said thank you for joining us again. And also, <laughs> you can listen to you can listen to the podcast. I think on any sort of like anywhere you sort of listen to podcasts. We'll, we'll add the links into the show notes to make that easier for everyone. And I do definitely recommend that if you are interested in like the themes of this show, that uh, to listen to Joanne's because it is like just a really good and very very well researched uh, researched uh, production. Um, mm. This is a uh, thank you so much for listening to this free episode. Uh, you can listen to lots of bonus content on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 10K post podcast. We do uh, bonuses every week, uh, lots of interviews, film reviews. Uh, uh, is like there's some really really cool stuff on there and also supporting us means that we can do this show without ads and we can also keep it editorially independent which is something that we value very highly uh phoebe do you want to do your plugs before we uh before we jump out sure yeah um here are the other here are the other places that you can find me having built up my digital persona you can subscribe to my Substack link below um you can listen to me and milo edwards's seinfeld podcast or you can listen to romecast which i did with milo and pat where we take a revisit of um the hbo series series rome from 2007 i'm having a having a real kind of 2007 revival it's myspace it's rome mm. everyone is having everyone's having a great time what's northern rock that's my <laughs> um that's my that's, yeah. that's my position you know what i'd recommend if you want to do a 2007 throwback uh the mm-hmm. original Michael Bay Transformers film. Don't yeah, I'm not that. gonna. I'm not gonna do that. That's all right. <laughs> not gonna, That's okay. Not gonna comment on that. I, was, I went to uh, see yeah. that. I went to see that in the cinema. I booked tickets to go see that in the cinema. I was so excited. Yeah, I feel like at that time you were either like what you were either in 2007. You were either gonna go watch Twilight or you were watching uh, Transformers. Uh, I watched both, baby. Ah, uh, there we go. Woman of culture. Um, That's right. <laughs> the, show, the show is produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth. Listen to their podcast, Kill James Bond. If you don't already, it's very, very good. Uh, yeah, and I think on that note, we'll close out. So until next time, have a good one. Bye. Bye.